practices. It's been a chance for us to say, why is it that I do what I do in regards to spiritual practice? And even that word has some stained glass connotations. What does it mean to have spiritual practices anyways? Well, it simply means that there are things that we do to get as close to Jesus as we possibly can and then proactively communicate his love to those who don't know him, who were created in his image. That's why spiritual practices, to get close to God and to get close to people simultaneously. That's why we do things like pray. That's why we study the word and reflect on God's living and active word. It's why we worship, which is to give him everything that we have. It's why we repent and say we're sorry. It's why we extend forgiveness to other people. It is love. As a follower of Jesus, I want to bring all the truth and all the grace that love has to offer because it's both. And that's what makes it so darn contentious. It's because it's both. It would be really easy if it was all truth. And we could just scream and yell at people until they get their behavior right. Wouldn't it be easy if we could just do that? Just tell them it's sin and get over it. Right? Or if it was all grace. Doesn't matter what you do. It's all right. God just loves you right where you're at. Don't make any changes. Wouldn't it be easier to live in either of those two spaces? You wonder why a lot of people live in one or the other. Because this middle ground is really hard to sustain. This place of grace and truth and a reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit to know in which situation to offer more grace, when to offer more truth, and how to listen to needs as they change and understand what people need in different moments. It's difficult. But God has asked us to go there, but he hasn't left us there alone. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. It's why we do these things of prayer and study and worship and being generous and repenting and forgiving and loving is so that we can be close to God and close to people. That's why we do these things. Why have you decided that you do these things? That's what 21 days has been about. And it's not over yet. We can still do these reflections. Why is it that I want to pray? What do I want to get out of prayer this year? What do I want to get out of my study in the Word? What do I want to get out of being even more generous? What do I want to get out of these spaces? These are questions we can still ask at the beginning of the year. And so this morning I want to share some of my personal reflections from the time that I've spent in John's letters this week. Uh, We were given an opportunity, most of us this week, to go through a seven-day dedicate series out of the first, uh, the book of first John, second John and third John, and then reflections from, uh, the book of Psalms as well. But I, I'm focusing a lot of what I have to say today out of the context of first John, um, in light of also our, our celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King, I wanted to share with you, uh, about some of the most moving experiences I had in 2019. One of those things being my trip to the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. I'll save some of those reflections for the end of this time, uh, but it has brought a, a profound deafness to my understanding of what Dr. King did on behalf of so many. But about John's letters, let's talk about John's letters for a minute. First John, second John, and third John. Uh, They all center around themes of love and courageous sacrifice. These things were practiced as he learned in the midst of his intimate connection with Jesus. John was practicing these things, and he was close to Jesus, and learning how to practice love and sacrifice. It was clear by the way that John lived out the 60 years of his life following the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. John was around for 60 more years after Jesus ascended It's clear that intimacy with Jesus 
was deeply correlated with his impact on the kingdom. So he was going to make a difference in Asia Minor. He was going to make a difference in Jerusalem. He was going to make a difference in Ephesus. But all of it was contingent on his intimacy with Jesus. Just like last week, we understood that everything that Jesus did was contingent on his intimacy with the Father. There's this correlation of intimacy between the Father and the Son, the Son and his children. He is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. There's this depth of intimacy that we've been called into. Now, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are similar in style to the Gospel of John. When you read the Gospel of John and then the letters, you see a similarity in the writing, although the author does not identify himself. Most scholars would say, yeah, we believe that John, the son of Zebedee, wrote this letter. The author of 2nd and 3rd John is simply identified as the elder John. So there's other Johns that could have been, but we believe for the most part, that it was John, the disciple of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, the son of Zebedee. At the time these letters were penned, John was overseeing church plants, house churches, all over the area of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He was overseeing house churches. That's what he was doing. He was training up young church planters. He had a little church planting cohort going on, and he was helping young men and women figure out how to lead within their contexts. He was writing primarily in this letter, in these letters, to Jewish followers of Jesus who were in the throes of a crisis. There was a crisis going on in the time of the early church. What had happened is that some in their community had distanced themselves from the faith. Some who had closely followed Jesus were walking away, taking steps back, They were no longer acknowledging that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. They were no longer identifying Jesus as the Son of God. They were stirring up hostility. These beliefs were being widely shared that, well, maybe Jesus was just a good man. Maybe he didn't rise from the dead. Maybe he wasn't actually the Son of God. And these hostilities... The specific things that were going on are addressed in two very short, almost like text messages, I would say. Second John and Third John are so short. Those were directly responding to some of the crises that were taking place at the time. But some of those who broke away from faith began preaching a, a false gospel, and they were creating confusion for people, where people might wake up in the morning and say, wait, do I really know God? I mean, I thought I did, but these people are... Am I really experiencing the benefits of eternal life? So what I want us to do to make this real and applicable for this moment is to find a friend next to us for just a minute. And I want us to respond to this question. I want us to be able to respond to this question without it potentially getting heated. But I'm okay taking us into this places because I believe that 2020 is going to be one of the most contentious years that this nation has ever dealt with, maybe since the Civil War. I kid you not. The amount of tension and anxiety around social issues and right and left and politics and impeachments and all the rest of that sometimes trick us into thinking that the the ongoing success of the United States of America is intrinsically tied to the ongoing success of the kingdom, and it isn't. It isn't. It is right to be patriotic. It is right to honor our flag. It is right to honor our troops. But we serve a different kingdom. We serve a different kingdom. Church, this year, we have a chance to be light or we have a chance to be dark like the rest of the world by the way we respond, by the way we navigate grace and truth, the way we navigate right and left. 
We stand in the middle and we contend for Jesus. So when I ask questions like the ones I'm about to ask, it gives us practice to potentially hear something we disagree with and listen before we respond or judge. Okay? Whew. When thinking about faith in our current culture, what's a place of conflict and uncertainty that you're experiencing personally right now? Because these are the same things that John came to address. There was conflict in culture about faith and who Jesus was. And it created all sorts of contentious things. It seems really pretty when we gloss over it 2,000 years later, but it's the same sort of thing. Is there a debate right now? Is there a conflict in faith and in culture? Does anyone think that maybe culture has different ideas about who Jesus is and where he belongs? Whew! All right, two minutes. <laughs> I just want you to share with somebody next to you. We're not getting into it. We're just sharing the issue that keeps us up at night concerning faith and the direction of our culture. Go. All right, isn't it amazing how fast two minutes goes by? <laughs> I'm going to peel you away from your discussions and Megan, keep them up after service. All right. All right. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through four. Let's read this together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at in our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard 
so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. There's a month worth of sermon right in here alone. Just three quick observations. When John is given the opportunity to address the challenges in the conflict between faith and culture, he says this essentially. Where does he go? Does he go to the right? Does he go to the left? Does he affirm his political argument and make sure that he's heard? No. He essentially says, look at Jesus. So when we're dealing with this conflict and this tension that we're dealing with in our nation, that we're dealing with in the world, first and foremost, it doesn't mean we don't respond. It doesn't mean we don't get engaged. But first and foremost, look at Jesus. Essentially, John is saying this, consider the reality of our Savior. He lived, he died, he rose again. And this is what John says, and I saw him. I saw him. I heard his voice. I touched him in the flesh. Guys, I know he's been gone since before your, I mean, your grandparents talk about it. He's talking to a new generation of kids. 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Right? It's the only way maybe we can talk about Dr. King to this generation. I saw him. Some of the closest that were to him just passed away. So now it's all secondhand account. But all the more instead, not just Dr. King, but Jesus. I saw him. John is working to communicate this with everything in him. He says, he will lead us through fear into a kind of love that cannot be known apart from him. He will guide us into depths of intimacy like we've never, ever experienced. I saw him, and I want to tell you, and I want to tell you so that you can know. And to say, you know him, we can know each other, and we have fellowship with God together. This is the passion. Here's the thing. John was courageous to hold on to truth in a generation that was saying, Jesus isn't who you say he is. Banished to an island, exiled for his faith. This was the gospel he contended with. And wouldn't it be easier to just let go of it? Wouldn't it be easier to just drift to the left or to the right and just be with people that agree with us all the time? That's why they made Facebook. There's algorithms in Facebook to keep you getting content that you agree with all the time. Here's the deal. Holding on to truth is going to be scary because it will bring an opposition that passivity will not bring. (laughs) Sometimes I wake up and just think it would be easier to just slide one way or the other on this, to not hold the tension between grace and truth, but it's what I've been called to do, to rely on the Spirit, to hold the tension. And guess what? When we lean in, stuff comes at us. I was talking with someone just this morning, been praying for them all week and realizing that they have gone through hell and back over the last 16 or 17 days. And then I look at what was going on and right before everything broke loose for them and seeing a persistence to press into hard spaces, to hold truth and to love well and to follow God into the places that they had. And then bam, it was like their whole world came crashing down. But when I got a chance to talk to them, I said, you know what? It's because, it's because of the persistence you have to press into truth, to hold on to these places. And yeah, it would be easier if passivity came, but not really in the end, right? 
Many of the New Testament letters, this is interesting, move forward with carefully crafted and well-organized arguments. A lot of Paul's stuff you can't actually read from the middle. You have to go back to the start because a lot of times he says, therefore, and therefore, and therefore, and he is building an argument that you need to go to the start from. Not so with John's letters. It's very interesting. These are like, uh, it's more just like a, a, a pastoral, loving, joyful sermon that circulates. You read it and you're like, haven't I read this already in chapter three? Didn't I read this in chapter four? I thought I, I read it in five, but I also read it in one. It's just a concert a harmony of the goodness of God in his love. And it circles back through different themes that we're just to absorb and receive. That is the letters of First and Second and Third John. It's a poetic sermon. Light in the face of darkness. Love in the face of hatred. Sacred relationship and courageous belief in the face of all of it. That's the themes. Those are the things that we see. And this isn't new content. This isn't new content that John is bringing. Most of it is found from his experiences in the gospel. Most of what we read is actually recirculated from John 13 through 17. Same author, most likely. Reflecting on the night that he spent with Jesus, the night before Jesus was crucified. And this is the message of 1 John. God is light and God is love. Fellowship, the word in the Greek is koinonia, and it simply means to participate with Jesus in faith with the bigger family. That's why we gather together. So let's continue. God is light. Read, we're reading John 1, or 1 John 1, 5 through 10. I'll just read this for us. You can reflect on this as I read. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and the truth does not, uh, and we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. This is what David was talking about this morning. So how do we do this? If People want to remain in fellowship with God and with the family. They must continue to walk in the light. How do we walk in the light? What does it say that we do? There's actual applications of things that we can do. Number one, own up to our sin. Just own up to it. Right? As it goes on, I think let's read the rest of that passage. You skip back one real quick. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. His word is not in us. How do we walk in the light? We own up to our mistakes. Just own it. So refreshing when we just said, yeah, I got that wrong. Totally blew it. Can you forgive me? Can we try again? So much life in that. Not only do we own up to our sin, we confess it and we're accountable to other people. Why? To keep humility circulating around the room. That no one all of a sudden decides that, you know, that's where people fall short, is when they decide they don't need to confess their sins to others. There's this thing that goes through our, our minds and then comes out of our mouths that goes like, I got this. That's how it goes. Oh, I got this. You don't got nothing. Tyrone and I were taking trash out this morning, just talking about how badly we need to be in community with one another. Because if we're left by ourselves, we are a hot mess real fast. We're supposed to be in relationship with one another. 
So at the point of our confession, this is where I meditated this week. At the point of our confession, a pathway forward is made available to us through the person of Jesus. The path is there, but the door opens upon our confession, and we can walk into that. He has spared no expense at the cost of his son in making a way for us. How many times do we stop and think there's no way forward? I don't know what to do. Oftentimes it's confession. He makes a way. He makes a way for us. Fear, however, tries to convince us that there isn't a way forward. How many times do we fear and we stop and we hold on to things? Because we think there isn't a way forward. The way forward oftentimes is through some sort of confession, some act of repentance, some sort of turning around and going in the other direction. That is how we walk in the light. But how do we stay in the light? (laughs) Right? It's like you ever try to get a suntan and you're in a spot. And then the sun moves and you were in the light and then you're not in the light and you got to pick up your chair and you got to move to the light again. You got to move to the light again. You got to move to the light again. How do we stay in the light? We stay in the light very clearly as John points out to us. We keep God's commands. That's it. We stay in the light by keeping his commands. What are his commands? Love people. Love people because by definition, as we love people, we are loving God. This is kind of the cyclical thing as you read through 1 John. You're going to just hear this over and over again. It gets really simple. How do I walk in the light? I confess my sin. I own up to it. How do I stay in the light? I love people. And by loving people, I love God. Boom. There's this. Simple. Not easy, but simple. Right? I imagine John reflecting back on the words of Jesus. While he sacrificially and courageously washed the feet of his disciples. This is where this is coming from. Because he saw him. He knew him. He touched him. He heard him. This we proclaim to you concerning the eternal life. And when we come up short in our commitments, because we will, we remember that Jesus' sacrifice covers our sin. It gives us place and space to get up and keep going. God is light, and God is love. In chapter 3, we hear about loving one another and avoiding hatred like the hate that Cain had for his brother Abel. And how much of the hate that we have in ourselves. Think about this. Think about places where you're hating right now. (laughs) Big deal and little deal. I hate the 49ers. Do I hate them worse? Because they're going to have a chance to get what I don't got, which is a trip to Miami for the Super Bowl. I hate those guys so much. A guy that I also hate, Aaron Rodgers, I I like him more. I want him to beat the 49ers because they got what I don't got. And guess what I want when the Super Bowl comes? I want them both going down. Give me Tennessee or give me Patrick Mahomes. But where does that that, come from? It comes from he's got what I don't got. God liked his sacrifice better than mine. He's got this. He's got that. She's got this. She's got that. So remembering in humility that love conquers all of that. Let's read this together. Let's put it up here. Next slide. Maybe that's not it. Maybe I'll just read to you John, 1 John 4, 16 and 18. God is love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. These two things that have struck me in my reflections have to do with how often my fear is the initial response to unwelcome situations. 
You ever have that? Something comes, it's oppressive, it's oppositional, and fear is my first response. But the word says that God is love, not God has love. He is love. And if I abide in him, I can abide in his love. That struck me because so many times fear is my first response. So what's the implication? When I'm noticing that there are areas of my life where fear is creeping in, what's the implication? It means that there are places in my life that aren't submitted to Jesus. That was a reflection for me this week. I'm like, oh, well, if there's no fear and love and I got fear, then that's a spot that's like prepped up and I got to resubmit that. I got to confess that again back to the Father, back to Jesus. And to say that we should never fear, I wanted to make this disclaimer. Fear is a God-given emotion. It's a warning light. It's a chance for us to realize that there might be places of danger that we shouldn't wander into. It doesn't mean to be reckless. It just means to keep the fear submitted to Jesus. Right? Like, I might be fearful of a thing, or I might uh, uh, this warning might come up that I'm maybe not supposed to go somewhere or do something. That's from the Lord. But I don't have to let it distract me. I can just respond to it and be obedient to what God has asked me to do. Does that make sense in the midst of that? Some things I fear, even this week, failure. Sometimes I just, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail. At what? I don't know, just generally. (laughs) Then I'm going to fail. Or I might not meet the expectations of other people. Sometimes I'm afraid of that. Or sometimes I got the FOMO. You guys know about the FOMO? Fear of missing out, F-O-M-O. You guys heard of this? FOMO, right? I... I'm afraid that I'm going to miss out on opportunities, so I take them all at once, right? Maybe I'm afraid of not having enough. Anyone ever afraid of not having enough money, not enough time, not enough support? Things I fear. I fear being misunderstood, judged, and rejected because of my commitment to Jesus, especially in a changing culture. I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. What kind of thoughts went through your head this morning when you sang that? This world's getting awfully difficult to follow Jesus in. And the temptation is maybe I should go with the flock. It's a temptation sometimes. Maybe I should just let go of some of this stuff. Oh, sure be easier for a minute, right? Though none go with me, I will follow, even though rejection may come. So that's one thing this week in my reflection on John letters, John's letters, how often my fear is an initial response. Secondly, is different. The thing that challenged me from, from the reading was the alluring challenge attached to one person's willingness to respond to the other person's deepest struggle. There's a challenge in that. When you watch somebody who isn't necessarily in a space where they have to jump into the mess to help, and they jump in anyways to help someone else in the midst of their struggle, wouldn't it be easier to just let them struggle and go about our own way? Wouldn't it just be easier But when someone responds to the struggle of another with sacrificial love, when they respond with sacrificial love, that's where everything changes. That's where I'm challenged. Deeply, deeply challenged. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Oh, 
challenge is I just can't respond to every need that I see. And I see a lot of them. But I can respond to the ones that God is calling me to. I had a chance to respond to a very specific need this week in regards to love and, and action. And I just think, maybe I shouldn't do that, but then maybe I, I probably, it would be good for me if I did, within reason. Here's the thing about fear in sacrificial love, is that expressions of sacrificial love have an innate ability to push through the intimidating tactics that fear has to offer. When we respond sacrificially, it's like we almost don't see the fear anymore. We're just going for it. We're just going for it. These are things I'm thinking about. Being close to God and pain. Because it would be easier to just ignore the pain. A young person from this neighborhood a year and a half ago, right when we got here, we're down at Muckleteo Beach. I've shared this story once before, but I think about it every day. Was rocking back and forth on a log on the beach at sunset. The fire was on, and I'm telling these young people, I care about your lives. I want to know what's going on. And one young person, brave soul, hadn't hardly met them, rocking back and forth on their own log with all genuineness and sincerity goes, you're going to learn a lot. And then that just hung in the air as we locked eyes. And I dealt with this moment of, oh, sweet Jesus, I don't think I want to know. I don't think I want to know. Because what? It's going to break my heart to know. Guess what I got to do? I got to know. I got to press through fear and respond with sacrificial love. It's what this book is all about, being close to God and pain. Whew. So last May, while we were at our global Foursquare convention in Nashville, Tennessee, I drove with a few friends across the state of Tennessee. It's a beautiful drive to Memphis. We'd gone to visit the National Civil Rights Museum. And as I mentioned earlier, it was one of the highlights of my year, getting to go with friends Harlan and Cheryl Harris, friends from Eastside Foursquare, now church planters over on the peninsula. The National Civil Rights Museum was opened on the site of the Lorraine Motel and Hotel in Memphis, where Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. Now, the museum was masterfully set into the original bones of the hotel. If you go to the next picture, you can see this. You see the hotel and the motel and the museum that was built behind it and incorporated into the building. To walk up to this site is to step 52 years back into our nation's history. And nothing has changed. You feel like you've stepped into a time warp and you're like, wow, that's what it looked like. The museum is intended to help visitors better understand the events of the American Civil Rights Movement. And this museum has an innate ability to take people back into the history. I think it's so interesting because something remarkable happens in our hearts when we experience people and places firsthand. Something really great happens. And this reality is reflected in John's words of encouragement to the church in Asia Minor. Oh, I wish you could have been there, seen him, heard him, touched him. This is the same version of that for today. Creating a space where we can step in to understand things that we did not previously understand. Appreciate things that we didn't previously appreciate. The museum takes visitors on a 400-year history tour. Visitors experience the North American slave trade. Not just in story, 
but in real life-size slave statues shackled together one body after the next, after the next, with six inches of clearing above their heads, being shipped across from West Africa to places in the Caribbean, places in South America, places in North America. And you realize, oh, my goodness. To be in that moment, to have your heart broken. The museum takes people through the rise of Jim Crow, the battles of desegregation in public schools, Rosa Parks on the Montgomery bus. You can sit next to Rosa on the bus and just feel the space. Feel the moment. Feel the tension. Feel the pain. Feel the courage rising. The museum talks about the Freedom Riders and many of their poignant moments in our nation's history. And until a year ago, actually until last May, I couldn't tell you very much about the hours and the days that led up to the death of Dr. King. But what I have learned since last May has profoundly impacted the depth of my understanding concerning his dedication to Jesus. Deeply dedicated to Jesus. Dr. King, in my studies of him, has challenged the way that I respond when I'm confronted with fear. Go forward through it in the power of Jesus. He has increased my desire to respond in love sacrificially for others by witnessing the outcomes of his personal sacrifices. And we're going to talk about one of these. Specifically, February of 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. There were 1,300 African-American sanitation workers in Memphis who were standing up in response to very poor working conditions that they were experiencing. These things came to a head when two African-American sanitation workers were killed in the back of their sanitation garbage truck because a faulty trash compactor had crushed them both. What were they doing in the back of the garbage truck? Well, the white sanitation workers could go onto the porches of the white homes where they collected the trash and wait out the torrential rainstorms that would sweep through Memphis. But the African-American sanitation workers could not go under the porches of the owners of, of the homes who were white. So they got in the back of these trucks, and a faulty switch killed them both, crushed in the back of their truck by a trash compactor. Their families did not receive the support that white workers received. And on February 12th, these 1,300 employees unionized and went on strike demanding equal compensation, equal treatment, and equal equipment and provision that the white workers had received. Well, the city of Memphis didn't want to recognize their union, but they stopped collecting the garbage anyways. Now, some people can go on strike, and then some people can go on strike. If people go on strike and don't pick up the garbage, guess what? Things start to stink in a hurry. Animals come out of places in a hurry. Things go bad in a hurry. But there they were protesting for better working conditions to get their union recognized. They marched and boycotted for weeks. And on March 18, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King was invited to rally with the sanitation workers to come alongside them as an ally. Says in one of his speeches, in fact, the speech that we'll listen to a part of in just a moment, he says, you are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. Oh, sweet Jesus. And here we are 52 years later in this rich nation. And I don't know what to do about it but to keep thinking about it. To let it impact some 
of my politics. To start thinking through things, to hear some stories from some people and see what I can do. We can't change it all ourselves. I shared with you that one of my early reflections is that Jesus didn't run around like a chicken with his head cut off fixing all the social dynamics, but he participated where he could. That's all we're called to do is participate where we can. Dr. King was invited and gave that speech on March 18th. Ten days later, he would march with the people. March 28th, 1968, would march through the streets of Memphis in the I am a man march. I am a man too, said the sanitation workers. We are men. Dr. King would always preach nonviolent civil disobedience. I'd suggest that's a little bit like what Colin Kaepernick did when he took a knee. We can talk about that later if you want, because there's multiple sides to this story, and every side needs to be heard. But that was nonviolent, and it was disobedient, but it was civil. And it got people's attention. It didn't mean, however, that Dr. King would be able to dictate the behavior of others. And that march got violent, and that violence was blamed on Dr. King. After spending a few days in Washington, D.C. on other issues related to work, Dr. King returned to Memphis in advance of another rally and gave his famous mountaintop speech on April 3rd. It was the last speech he would ever give. Check out the conclusion of that speech. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight 
that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What does uh, what does nonviolent civil disobedience bring immediately and then over time? This is cool. So as an outcome of Dr. King's speeches, his work in Memphis, his listening to the Spirit with a depth and an intimacy, what did he know? What was God speaking to him when he gave that speech to know that he had less than 24 hours left to live? And he proceeded anyways. What happened in Memphis? Well, all those workers, all 1,300 of them, got a 15% pay increase, better working conditions, and a recognition of their union when the strike ended. That's what they got immediately, right? 50 years later. In 2017, it was decided by the current white mayor of Memphis, this is cool, to reinstate the pensions of some of those workers who didn't receive them originally because they were told, they were advised, don't take it. So there's this handful of workers that in 2017 finally received their pensions 50 years later. And in fact, the Smithsonian Journal recorded this article you can find online, the strike that brought MLK to Memphis. In his final days, Martin Luther King stood by striking sanitation workers. We returned to the city to see what has changed and what hasn't. Beautiful article that talks about the fight and the legacy of Dr. King and what was given to those who had been denied justice for so long. And then it tells a story with beautiful photography of each of these men, a picture of them today, many of them in their 70s and 80s, and then a picture of when they marched and when they walked. We can't fix it all. And in fact, I think what the social justice piece lacks sometimes, I mean, it lacks on both sides. The justification piece lacks where it's just just Jesus, just give them the gospel, the message of. And the justice side lacks a little bit because it misses Jesus sometimes. When Dr. King talked about the promised land, he was talking about the kingdom of now and the kingdom of not yet. And we remember in our fight to do the right things in the kingdom of now, Lord, bring your kingdom, come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't mean we don't fight for things now, but we will never be satisfied in this life until the coming king comes again. So we fight with a hope, which is what Dr. King did, which made it different than a lot, I think, of what we see today, and then so reject, right? Just because it lacks the gospel doesn't mean that we can't bring the gospel into it as we serve and walk with others. What are we going to do today that 50 years from now is going to make a difference for people? What kind of fear will we press into on the, on the grounds of sacrificial love to make a difference? It's just like what First John was talking about, about Jesus, right? Dr. King followed Jesus. Why do we fast and pray? I ask myself this question every time I, I don't eat breakfast. I've been telling you, I've been fasting until lunchtime, which is just terrible for me because I really like to eat in the morning. So that's... So I wake up and I ask myself this question every day for the last 19 days. Why do I fast and pray? I've got one more picture to throw up there for you. I just, these are things that I record in this journal. Writing stuff down is, is really significant. And this is what the Lord showed me this week. We fast and pray to faithfully hold the tension between light and darkness, between love and fear. 
Because light casts out darkness. This is a physical reality. Light casting out darkness is a physical reality. But love casting out fear, that's a spiritual reality. And I'm challenged by the depths of intimacy that Dr. King had with Jesus. How does intimacy affect change? How does it affect change? How does intimacy with Jesus actually change something? Why does 21 days of prayer and fasting matter in April, in August, in November? What does it change? By resolving to stay close to God and close to pain, we see change come. When we walk into those situations, we'd rather just walk away because it's just too painful to deal with. Dr. King's mountaintop message comes into full color for me when we recognize that the context it was delivered in was not fear, but love. He had plenty of reasons to be fearful, but, but that doesn't matter to him now. Doesn't matter to me now. I'd like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, see? But I just want to do God's will. Mm. A man with an intimate relationship with Jesus. How fitting that we celebrate the life of Dr. King at the end of this fast. Love is what anchored Dr. King in the light. Dr. King's message was grounded in his love and intimacy with Jesus. He knew that there was no power apart from the power of the resurrection to free that spiritual bondage. Amen? So here's the challenge. With a day off from school, with many for a day off from work, there's lots of things that we can be involved in, right? I'm going to share vulnerably about some things that I've learned since this white guy got closer to people of color over the last three or four years. For me, like I said at the beginning, it's sort of joked about MLK Day was just another day off with cheap mattresses, if I'm being very honest. And it wasn't because of any sort of systemic hate or prejudice or any of that. It was just, it was just ignorance. That's all it was. So there's grace for that. There's grace that you didn't know what you didn't know until you know it. And then once you know it, then you got to do something, right? So when I start getting around communities, when I start getting around instructors, professors of mine that have... When I say instructors and professors, I mean especially kids in this neighborhood. People who have endured oppression like I will never understand. And I can't, I can't change all that. I can't. I don't want to feel guilty about it. I don't want to get angry about it. I just want to do something about it. Right? And what I started to hear more that I never heard before was, what are you doing for Dr. King's Day? What are you doing for Dr. King's Day? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> Buying cheap mattresses, bro. What are, you, what are you doing? But when you hear the stories, and you're like, this matters. This matters. It's an invitation for us to come into that, to celebrate with, right? So what are we doing? I don't care if it's organized. I mean, there's some things going around the city where you can rake leaves and clean up parks and paint fences and all the rest of that. That's great. Do something like that. But what would, what would be required of us, right? Going back to Micah. Going back to his words, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God? What if we did something intentionally tomorrow or today or this week, or maybe it was the other day, the day doesn't matter, it's the, the spirit of it, right? That was involving us pushing through some sort of fear to love sacrificially. What if that was it? 
Not only would it carry the message of Dr. King, it would carry the message of Jesus because Dr. King followed Jesus. That's it, right? That's right. Father, thank you for this journey that you've set us on. Thank you for the far right. Thank you for the far left. Thank you that each who stand in these places and all those in the middle on the spectrum were created in your image. Hmm. God, in a year where many things will be shaken, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us to be a a community that's just different, just uniquely and uncommonly diverse with a focus on Jesus and a grace for the process that we each endure and walk through. God, it's just more genuine to sometimes say, I don't have it all figured out, but I know that you do, and I lean on you because you're good. Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for the injustices, the unspeakable things that, Lord, happened, but we thank you for the good that's taking place because everything that was intended for evil, you will turn for the good. Lord, we pray prophetically over our neighborhood. God, for greater understanding of people's places, Lord, and just a resolve to together reinvestigate you, reinvestigate your claims of truth, reinvestigate your claims of grace and walk towards one another in sacred relationship and courageous belief. So, Father, thank you for this day. We pray uh, for the celebration this afternoon that your spirit would be present upon Leilani Miller as she speaks, present upon... Sherry and the team as they lead the choir, just present in the city that your light and your hope and your love would radiate and you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted above every other name. God, and tomorrow, as many will stop and pause to celebrate, we pray, God, prophetically, as I know other pastors are praying, that something would be established tomorrow by the work of your spirit that would just permeate across the rest of this potentially highly highly polarized year in this nation and around our world. God, we pray that your grace would come, that revival would come, that grace and mercy would lead us to kindness and repentance. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.